Well, good afternoon again. If you have a Bible, would you take it and turn to Isaiah chapter 36? Isaiah 36, and if you're not sure, just get to Psalms and head right, and you will find the large book of Isaiah. Uh, last Sunday, we began considering the, the threat that the Jewish people, that the people of Judah were facing. You remember that this threat has been looming for a while. They always knew that the, of the potential of an Assyrian invasion, that that was a very real threat, but now their eyes are actually witnessing what they had only heard about. Um, you might think about hearing the tornado siren. Around here, we hear it on uh, noon on the second Tuesday of every month. I'm pretty sure that that's right. Noon, second Tuesday of every month. And when you hear that, it reminds us that there's a, there's a force in nature that is a very real possibility. But also, in that moment, it's one that we can easily dismiss because we know that it's, it's just a warning. Uh, it's just a test, as it were. But then imagine one summer day, you're walking around, and the sky looks a little ominous, and you hear that same siren go off, except you realize it's not the second Tuesday of every month, and it's noon, but rather it's Thursday evening, and you see the clouds start to swirl. Things become much more real in that moment. And that's, in some ways, what's happening for the people of Judah. They had heard about this threat, but now it's right in front of them. That's their perspective. What about the perspective of their attackers, the, the Assyrians? There's a historical record called Sennacherib's Annals, and it's preserved actually to this very day on these two large six-sided prisms that they have these engravings on them. And it describes this event, and it describes the, the Assyrians' perspective of what we read about in chapter 36, verse 1. This is what it says there in Sennacherib's Annals. It says, As for Hezekiah, the Judahite, who did not submit to my yoke, 46 of his strong walled cities, as well as the small towns in their area, which were without number, by leveling with battering rams and by bringing up siege engines and by attacking and storming on foot by mines, tunnels, and breaches, I besieged and took them. 200,150 people, great and small, male and female, Horses, mules, donkeys, camels, cattle, and sheep without number, I brought away from them and counted as spoil. That's what we read about in chapter 36, verse 1. Assyria had conquered the fortified cities of Jerusalem, and the siege of Lachish, the city of Lachish, seems to have been the last of those battles. Lachish was a, a fortress city that guarded Jerusalem. And its fall is actually depicted in this relief that was discovered in the excavation of the city of Nineveh. And you can see it. Uh, it's the, it displays the brutality of the Assyrians as the people of Judah are led away into exile. Where we find Judah right now, though, is, is in this moment that Sennacherib has set his sights on the city of Jerusalem. But before he comes to attack it, you remember, he sends his field commander, the Rabshakeh, to try and persuade King Hezekiah to surrender. He arrives accompanied uh, in part by the, the Assyrian army, and he offers his arguments for surrender to the people of Judah. We saw last week that they are also arguments against faith. And not only against faith, but against God himself. The Rabshakeh tells the people that no one, 
especially not Egypt, is coming to help them. He tells them that they're too weak to save themselves, that God cannot save them any more than the gods of all the other nations were able to save them from Assyria. Not to mention the fact that Hezekiah had reduced the number of the altars in the land, and also the reality that God, according to the Rebshakeh, had sent the Assyrians to attack Judah. And for all of these reasons, the Rabshakeh tells Judah to not walk in the way of faith, but to surrender. And if they will surrender, he says, then they will be blessed by Assyria and by her king. Of course, that blessing he's talking about is exile. But he, he paints a very rosy picture of what exile is going to look like. Now, we're not going to go through those truths and half-truths and lies in the words of the Rabshakeh. We did that last Sunday. Rather, today, I want us to consider how Judah and her king, King Hezekiah, responded to this call for surrender, this, this mocking of faith and this defaming of God. And as we consider the way that the people in general and Hezekiah in particular responded, I think we're going to find that it's a realistic picture of how, what, how we might also respond. This is not a picture of a people with, with a perfectly formed faith but rather a people that are coming in their weakness and they're coming in their fear, but they're coming to the Lord. And their response is, is realistic, but it's also a challenge. It's a challenge and it's an encouragement to how we too might respond when we're tempted towards fear, when the future seems very uncertain and when faith in God is mocked. So we're gonna keep the, the same big idea that we had from last week, which was the Lord is the only king trust only in him. Same thought is being portrayed here in the, the text that we're going to look at. The Lord is the only king, trust only in him. But whereas last week we were thinking about the ways that we are tempted to not trust the Lord, this week I want us to see the, the ways that we might respond in faith. What does that trust look like? What will faith look like in the face of opposition? What will faith look like when we're filled with fear? What will faith look like when hope seems lost, when the armies of our souls are at the very gates? How do we live by faith? How do we trust the Lord in those moments when the news is bad or when the enemy is boasting or when the light at the end of the tunnel goes out? In those moments, what does faith look like? That'll be our question that we're trying to answer today, but before we start answering that question, what does faith look like? Let's read Isaiah 36, beginning in verse 21, and we'll read through chapter 37, verse 20. Isaiah 36, verse 21. Right after the Rabshakeh has spoken to the people of Israel, it says, but they were silent and answered him not a word. For the king's command was, do not answer him. Then Eliakim the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told him the words of the Rabshakeh. As soon as King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes, covered himself with sackcloth, and went into the house of the Lord. And he sent Eliakim, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and the senior priests, covered with sackcloth, to the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amoz. They said to him, Thus says Hezekiah, this day is a day of distress, of rebuke, and of disgrace. Children have come to the point of birth, and there is no strength to bring them forth. It may be that the Lord your God will hear the words of the Rabshakeh, 
whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to mock the living God and will rebuke the words that the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. When the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah, Isaiah said to them, Say to your master, Thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard, with which the young men of the king of Assyria have reviled me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him, so that he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. The Rabshakeh returned and found the king of Assyria fighting against Libna, for he had heard that the king had left Lachish. Now the king heard concerning Terhaka, king of Cush, he has sent out to fight against you. And when he heard it, he sent messengers to Hezekiah, saying, Thus you shall speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah. Do not let your God, in whom you trust, deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Behold, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all lands, devoting them to destruction. And shall you be delivered? Have the gods of the nations delivered them, the nations that my fathers destroyed, Gozan, Haran, Rezeph, and the people of Eden who were in Telassar? Where is the king of Hamath, the king of Arpad, the king of the city of Sepharvaim, the king of Hena, or the king of Iva? Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see, and hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations in their lands and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were no gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they were destroyed. So now, O Lord our God, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. Again, we're hearing this overarching call of the passage, the Lord is the only king, trust only in him. And in light of that call to trust, this call to faith, I want us to see how the response of Hezekiah and of Judah help us to answer the question, what does faith look like? Four answers to that question. What does faith look like? The first answer is a bit surprising. It's in verse 21, and it's this. What does faith look like? It looks like silence. It looks like silence. After all of those words of the Rabshakeh that we read last week, after telling the people on the wall that they were doomed to drink their own urine and eat their own dung in the siege that was coming on them, after promising them a, a home, a flourishing, a, a flourishing home outside of Jerusalem, what will the people of Judah, positioned out around the walls of Jerusalem, what will they say to the Rabshakeh? What's their comeback? What's kind of the zinger they're going to throw back at him? The answer, nothing. They say nothing. As they had been instructed to by Hezekiah, they say absolutely nothing. That doesn't mean that they weren't thinking anything. It doesn't mean that they weren't mad. It doesn't mean that they weren't scared or defiant or fearful. 
It simply means that they didn't say anything to him. Now, silence is not always the response of faith. We might think about the bold words of David as he came out to fight Goliath, or we might think about the mocking words of Elijah as he taunted the prophets of Baal. Or we can think about times where a lack of faith is what keeps us silent. But, says Barry Webb in a commentary, he says, there are times when silence is the most eloquent testimony to whose we are and whom we serve. There are times when silence is the most eloquent testimony to whose we are and whom we serve. Because often our rash words end up being a defense of ourselves or a protection of our pride. Our faith is mocked, and rather than speaking words that defend God, we try to save face. We return mockery with mockery. And in our day and age, there is no shortage of options for voicing our thoughts and opinions. You can tweet and post and blog and podcast and Instagram and do whatever you want. All, you can do that and send out your defenses and all of your snappy replies to the world. And the impersonal nature of these things, of social media and even of text messages, they cause us to type things that we would never say and to say things that we should never say. And while we, we do these things in, in this defense of God, this defense of the Christian faith, there are times when saying nothing is the best response. Now, again, there are times to speak, but there are times when faith is expressed through silence because that silence is trust. If you're struggling with that idea that faith in the face of mockery and in the face of enemies might express itself best through silence, then I would offer you my closing argument, which is Jesus. And my star witness is Second Peter 3.19 and following. This is what it says. This is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to, you, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Did you hear that? That's faith. He continued entrusting himself to his father, knowing that his father would judge justly. We are Christians. We are little Christs. We are followers of Jesus. And so we are always on the right path when we're seeking to follow in Jesus' steps. His silence before mockery was not a lack of trust, but it was an expression of how deep his trust in the Father was. And so too, our silence does not need to be labeled as resignation or as fear, but it can be a sign of deep faith. Silence is not passive. Rather, it is an active means of entrusting ourselves to God, knowing that he judges justly. Whereas we will be prone to, if we speak our minds, very often we just end up putting our foot in our mouth and exalting ourselves instead of exalting God. Well, we should move on because we've just covered one verse of this whole passage, right? <laughs> Behind faith 
expressing itself in silence might be a second expression of faith, namely humility. What does faith look like? It looks like humility. Now we could be more specific and we could say it looks like repentance and I think that's certainly true. Remember that it's only in turning from trust in all other refuges to trusting the Lord alone that Judah has any hope of deliverance. And that repentance is, is always the other side of the coin of faith. But this afternoon, let's, let's emphasize the humility that we see throughout this passage on, behalf, on the part of God's people. Reading these verses and seeing the actions of King Hezekiah and his commanders, there is no hint of pride anymore. The Judah that had trusted in Egypt and the Hezekiah that had taken the gold off of the doors of the temple and given it to Sennacherib, those, those folks are long gone. Instead, what we see, especially in Hezekiah, is a man broken by the situation that he is facing. We might envision him walking into the temple, walking through these doors that he had stripped the gold off of. All of his efforts, his aqueducts, his army, his alliances, his attempts at buying peace, they have all failed. And he and his fellow elders come to the Lord dressed in sackcloth. He recognizes how bad things have gotten, naming this day as one of distress, one of rebuke from the Lord, and one of disgrace for all those who are called by his name. It's a day that has sapped all the people of strength. They have no will to fight the Lord or anyone else. They don't even have will to live anymore. And as Hezekiah comes to the Lord, he doesn't come with arrogance, but he comes with a brokenness that knows that the Lord does not have to listen to him, but with the hope that he will. Isaiah, if I've learned anything about faith in these first chapters, it's that this idea that at the core of faith and at the core of repentance is a rejection of all help outside of the Lord. That's a big part of what repentance is. It's rejecting all outside help except for the Lord. Trust in and turning to the Lord is an admission of how we have foolishly and pridefully trusted in other people and in other things. It is to, to see, it, repentance is to, to see where we have stripped the gold from the temple doors. It, it's to see where we have trusted ourselves and trusted others and how those things have failed us. And from that place of brokenness, we humbly resolve to rest completely in the Lord. This is the kind of humility that the gospel awakens in us. The good news that Jesus is the Savior of the world is only received by those who admit that they are not the Savior, nor is anyone or anything else. That he has done what we could never do through his perfect obedience. That he has died in our place, taking the penalty that we rightly deserve. The kind of humility and faith that the gospel awakens in us is what we sang. Did you believe this when you sang it? Not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's commands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. The humility of faith is on full display when Hezekiah enters the temple for the second time in chapter 37, verse 14. 
After the first message of the Rabshakeh, Hezekiah sought a word from Isaiah, and he received that in chapter 37, verses 6 through 7. But then Assyria is forced to delay its invasion of Jerusalem and deal with an attack from elsewhere. But Sennacherib, as he is leaving Lachish, he sends a message to Hezekiah. And it's as if he's looking over his shoulder on the way to this other battle, and he says to Hezekiah, don't think I'm done with you. I'm coming back, and when I come back, faith will not save you then. And it's after this second word, this letter that comes from Sennacherib, that we're given this striking picture in chapter 37, verse 14. It says there, Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. Can you see him there? There's a lot happening in that action. And part of it is surely that Hezekiah has realized that he does not need to take this letter to his advisors. He doesn't need to take it to his military commanders. He doesn't even need to take it to Isaiah. Instead, he takes it and he spreads it out before the Lord as if to say, only you can deal with this God. Thou must save and thou alone. Our power went out for a few minutes on Friday morning. And apart from calling LG&E, do you know what I could do to restore our power? <laughs> Absolutely nothing. The life of faith is no different. Jesus was clear, apart from him, we can do nothing, which is humbling. There are times when we need to, to come to him in that kind of humility. We need to come to him and bring the, the letters, whether they're real or imaginary, whether they're, they're physical letters or or something else, we bring them to the Lord, these things that fill us with fear, and we lay them before him, knowing that only he can handle it. We lay out before him our job situation, our future, our relationships, our family, our children, our marriage, our health, our finances, our addictions, our hopes and dreams, and we say, Lord, you must save and you alone. Faith is expressed in a humility that recognizes that God alone is our only hope in life and in death. So what does faith look like? It looks like silence. It looks like humility, an on our face before God kind of humility. Two more thoughts very quickly stated. Third, faith looks like drawing near to the Lord. Drawing near to the Lord. These next two thoughts. I'm going to give you lots of seeds to meditate and think on, and hopefully you can flesh them out in your life and heart. It looks, faith looks like drawing near to the Lord. I don't know if that's the best way to say it, but what we see is we continue to see Hezekiah going to the temple and seeking out the prophet. He seeks out the, the means that he has for hearing from the Lord, the temple and the prophet. Now, as New Covenant believers— I think we can say two parallel ways that we might draw near to the Lord are draw near to the Lord in faith are through the community of believers and through the word of God. How do we draw near to, to the Lord through the community of believers, through, through the church and through the word of God? The church, the redeemed people of God indwelt by his spirit is the temple of God, right? And as we gather with one another and speak truth to one another and receive counsel from one another, as we sing with and pray for one another, we are all helping each other draw near to the Lord. We draw near to the Lord when we come to church, not because we are in a place set apart for the presence of God to dwell in, but rather because we are a people set apart by grace and filled with the presence of God. 
And so our gatherings on Sundays and at other times are acts of faith that draw us closer to the Father. So we draw near to the Lord, not only through the community of believers, but also through the word of God. Uh, Isaiah the prophet spoke God's word to God's people. And here in the scriptures, we have the prophetic word made more sure, which Peter tells us we would do well to pay attention to, like a light shining in the darkness. We are faithless. We come to the mirror of the scriptures so that we can remind ourselves of of what is true and be bolstered in our faith. We are reminded of of God's perspective on the world and of the reality that the, the glory of God is what is most important. Now, one final thought, thinking about drawing near to the Lord, and let's bring together the community and the word of God. If these two ideas of drawing near to the Lord, if, if, if the community of believers and the word of God draws close to the Lord, then it makes perfect sense that we would emphasize and center our gatherings around the proclamation of scripture through preaching. The word of God proclaimed amongst the people of God draws us near to God and strengthens our faith in God in a way that nothing else can. Nothing except for maybe the fourth and final answer to our question, what does faith look like? And that's prayer. What does faith look like? It looks like prayer. Prayer, we might say, is the act of faith, capital T. It is faith distilled to its purest form. Prayer is everything else we've been talking about. Prayer is silence before our enemies. Prayer is humility. Prayer is drawing near to the Lord. And so it's no surprise that the climax of this narrative, thinking about faith, is the moment that Hezekiah falls on his face and prays. Here we see and we hear what it looks like to trust the Lord alone. We are shown in this moment with Hezekiah that to be firm in faith is to fall on your knees. Looking at this prayer, we can, we can ask, what are, the, what are the elements, though, of a prayer of faith, a specifically a prayer of faith, in the face of opposition. Saying that, I want to give you a homework assignment. Side note, compare Hezekiah's prayer here to Jesus's prayer in the garden. And if you want a further assignment, go back and consider the words of the Rabshakeh, those temptations, and compare them to the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. And I think we'll see lots of parallels. But back to where we're at. What are the elements of a prayer of faith in the face of opposition? I want to give you four. These are not exhaustive, and I won't say that uh, all that I could about them, so I'll leave them to you to discuss. But elements of prayer, of the, of the kind of prayer of faith in the midst of crisis and opposition. Number one, honesty about our emotions. Honesty about our emotions. That's what this prayer looks like. This goes back to humility. Uh, it's, and it's seen more in Hezekiah's posture than in his words. He's obviously overcome by his own inability to do anything to save himself or to save his people. He's frightened by the Assyrians. He knows what they are capable of. And he brings all of this to the feet of God. As we come to the Lord, though, though he knows the opposition and the crises we face, we are free to be honest about all the emotions that arise in our hearts. Our anger, our fear, our pain, all those things. David encourages us this way in Psalm 62.8. He says, trust in the Lord at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. 
God is a refuge for us. That's what David tells us to do. And you know what he does in the Psalms? He shows us how to do it. We, we constantly see David pouring out his heart before the Lord. The lie that prayer has to be polished and perfect keeps us from coming to the Lord. But rather he wants us to be honest about all the things that we are feeling, to bring all of our emotions to him. What does this kind of prayer in the face of opposition looks like? It looks like honest, it, it can, it, the elements are honesty about our emotions. Secondly, clarity about who God is. Clarity about who God is. On Thursday evenings, we discuss the, the upcoming passage um, during our prayer time. And Murney pointed out during this past Thursday's discussion that this prayer that Hezekiah is praying, he, he is praying. He is preaching to himself. And Joshua helped us see how the truth that he's, he's praying and preaching is rooted in the truth of Scripture. His titles for God, his affirmations of God's character, his understanding of the futility of the false gods, these all flow from his understanding of, of God's word. And so when we are in crises, when we feel fearful, when you feel overwhelmed, all we can see are our circumstances. They sort of come up in front of our face and they blind us, and that's all we can see. So what does prayer do? Prayer takes us into the presence of God and it removes the crisis from our eyes and it shows us who God is. In these kind of prayers, we're reminded that he is the Lord of hosts, the God of angels' armies. He is the God of Israel. He's the one who cares for and protects his people. He is enthroned, exalted above angels and earthly kings. He is the only God and king over all kingdoms. He is the creator of the heavens and the earth. He is the living God unlike all of the false gods that Assyria had trampled. Those are all the names of God that, that, that uh, Hezekiah brings out in this prayer so that he can remind himself who God is. And when we see who God is, the things of the of earth, the, its cares, its concerns, its crises, they grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Let the clarity about who God is bring clarity to the threats that you face. So knowing who God is and his care for us then leads us to boldness in our pleas. So what are the elements? We're thinking about clarity about who God is. We're thinking about um, honesty about all of our emotions and now boldness in our pleas. Have you ever prayed like verse 17? Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see and hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Do you plead with God to hear and to see you? When we're assured of who God is, that he's the God of the universe and who we are as his children, then we can come boldly before his throne of grace. We can come in the name of Jesus and trust that he will hear us, that he will do what is for our good and for his glory. And that leads us to the final element of this kind of prayer and it's zeal for God's glory. Zeal for God's glory. What is Hezekiah's great concern? It's that God has been mocked and that he should instead be exalted in all the nations. Zeal for God's glory. Now, that's all I'm gonna say about zeal for God's glory. <laughs> because the, the, the Isaiah is going to talk about this idea of, of God's glory uh, in the next section of uh, the rest of chapter 37, and that's what we're gonna discuss next week. So save your thoughts about zeal for God's glory until next Sunday. So let me just close by reminding you that the Lord is the only king. So trust only in him. 
in the face of all the lies and the temptation that come at us, in the face of the lies and the temptations that will come at you this week, in the face of the crises that we face, in the face of difficulty, when we're not sure what's going to happen, we're called to trust the Lord. Trust the Lord. It just sounds so simple, right? What does trust look like? This chapter shows us what trust looks like. It looks like silence. Silence, trusting that God will fight for us and that he is for us. It looks like humility, knowing that God alone is our help and our hope. It looks like drawing near to the Lord through the gifts of his people and through the gift of his word. It looks like prayer, prayer that is honest about our emotions, prayer that is clear about who God is, prayer that is bold in its pleas, and prayer that is filled with a zeal for the glory of God alone. And so this week, as you face different, different difficulties, as people maybe mock your faith, as you doubt what's going on, as you face uncertainty and pain and heartache, I would say to you, brothers and sisters in Christ, the Lord is the only king. Trust only in him. Let's take a moment of silence, and then I will close us in prayer, and we'll sing a song. Father, forgive us for trusting so many other things. Forgive us for being overwhelmed, but then not coming to you and bringing all of our fears to you and trusting in you. Lord, help us to know when to be silent and when to speak. Fill us with humility, knowing that you alone can save us. Draw us near to you, Lord, through the gift of your people and through the gift of your word. Oh, teach us how to pray. So often we turn to prayer as our last resort. But Lord, help us to be people who are always spreading our concerns before you, asking for your help, knowing that you must save and you alone. I ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.